Welcome back to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories from outstanding business people by BDO Canada. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton this afternoon from BDO Canada. Mike, welcome back. Hey, Dan. How are you? Excellent. How are you? Good, thanks. Today, interesting product. I mean, this is kind of a first for us. It's aftermarket furniture um, and finishings for kitchens, bathrooms. So Steve Kikiman Fontaine is the co-founder of Bokia, uh, which sounds like IKEA on purpose because they make IKEA bow uh, or, or better. So uh, he has all these finishings that uh, go on top of your IKEA products. And so you order your IKEA and then you um, basically customize it with Bokia. Yeah. And it, 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 you know, you can do it two ways. You can either do it from the initial installation or you can, if you're looking for a refit uh, 10, 15 years down the road, then you want to change your cabinets without changing, shall we call it the bones of everything. Uh, effectively, you can, you can jump in through this. I, I think it's a great idea. And uh, I will admit it was a relatively new concept from from my perspective, but you know I gave up the DIY stuff uh, years ago when I was on the farm, and the, after we moved into the first house, and my wife said, "Promise me you will never do any more of these things yourself." So yes, maybe why I'm not up to speed on it. Well, I certainly take the pain out of uh, out of some of those kitchen renos, and if you can buy IKEA and have high end finishings at the same time. Um, yeah, pretty interesting product, and uh, this concept popular in Europe, and it's uh, kind of uh, the first time that's been overseas, at least in this neck of the woods. So um, pretty interesting, and we're also going to ask him what does IKEA think about all this, and uh, so that's that's on the way on inspiring entrepreneurs. Plus, we talk about digital transformation uh, on the program today with the Eastern Canada leader at BDO Canada, Anne Marie Henson. So how to really take it to your operations to the next level, inside and out, with digital transformation. Okay, uh, let's start with current events, shall we? And uh, we did. We were going back and forth a lot last few weeks on um, on Gen Z work attitudes and all of that, Mike. And um, there were this, we played a couple weeks ago this viral video of uh, these clashes between Gen Z and you know, do I come in early? Uh, am I supposed to come in early? And um, all of that. And uh, the the generation wars um, are are you know, I don't encourage them, but there are certain clear differences that we should discuss. So this piece from Business Insider about Gen Z job satisfaction and loyalty. And it seems that those stereotypes about loyalty, um, you know, there might be something to that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the I think it doesn't matter what you read someday, you're going to get a little bit of a different take on everything. But the interesting element on this is really, I think the Gen Zers are, you know, looking for uh, the paycheck, but they're, they're also looking for what the future brings somewhere down the road. And, you know, we were all brought up in the, you know, work hard, put your head down uh, and uh, you'll get that promotion. It'll move forward. It might not be at the same speed you thought, but hey, you're going to get there. Uh, I think the difference we're getting now with Gen Z is this complete and utter portability. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of them have been burnt. And we look at the last four or five years as we've come out of COVID, uh, the concept that uh, if they jump jobs, there's going to be an automatic increase in salary that they're not going to get. And I think, uh, you know, one of the one of the surveys in here says that uh, there's basically a seven percent less salary if you stay where you are than if you were to take a new job. Now, obviously, that brings a whole bunch of other questions and comments, but what it says to me is very clear: is you can be totally engaged for a couple of years at your employment and realize that's still not going to solve your problem going forward. And we have to start recognizing that this transportability of of employees is something we have to face on a daily basis, no matter how good the environment is. 
Any quick tips for uh, managing younger workforces and um, acknowledging that people are working differently these days? Well, I think the reality everybody has to face is the salary is a very transparent discussion. Uh, you know, when I grew up, everybody's like, okay, so you got your salary increase. You're doing really well. Not everybody's going to be as good as you. So let's not talk about salary. And, you know, the reality was is the only ones that never talked about salary in the back were those that we did well because they didn't want to influence anybody. Everybody else talked. Well, today, it's in, in many cases, most people know what salary is before they even go in and start uh, looking for a job. So I, I think this transparency of salary and sticking to the promises you make, if, you know, if you're going to give somebody an opportunity in six months, if you, if you don't give them that opportunity in six months, they're likely going to be out the door. Part of that is fostering an environment that is uh, heavy in teamwork and collaboration and creating an environment uh, where people actually want to contribute and want to um, work towards something together. This piece from HBR, Harvard Business Review, uh, why collaboration is critical in uncertain times. Um, your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the natural uh, leadership mentality when we get into difficult times is is to kind of hunker down and stop spending money and you, you kind of recoil to a certain degree. Um, and, and I think what we're looking at, and especially the economy we're looking at now and, you know, the, the, the growth rates, inflation, uh, as well as there's been, you know, a number of high profile layoffs in various organizations is, you know, what are the things you can look at to redefine and not necessarily have you, you know, recoil to a cave uh, in, in, and stop looking at things? Um, so, you know, redefining the meaning of scarcity. I mean, the reality is, as we go into tougher times, uh, resources become more scarce. Which ones are scarce and which ones are important and which ones do you want to focus on to, to, to build around from a scarcity perspective? If that's a people issue, if that's a product issue, you need to redefine what scarcity really is as opposed to what you used to think it was. The other thing you have to do is experiment with options. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, the 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 concept, uh, people have a tendency in more difficult times to um, stay the course and they forget to run uh, with options and ideas and experimentation. And sometimes these are the best times to, uh, to do it. Uh, you know, Dan, 15 years ago, that's how we ended up with a radio show. <laughs> we took an, you know, a period that was just very uncertain and took advantage of things. So I think you have to recognize that, that, that this is part of not, uh, you know, not stopping to spend, but how to spend, where to spend. That's that whole concept of scarcity of resources. Indeed, uh, this story is, is kind of right up my alley, and uh, it has to do, well, I guess, uh, tangentially with uh, with PR. But how companies uh, should weigh in on a controversy again from from HBR? Um, first, Mike, at a top level, what's your view on that? On on how leaders can weigh in on controversies that have their their workforces uh, talking? Well, I, yeah, there's there's got to be a consistency of message, and if you're going to get your workforce to to speak for you. Uh, you got to you got to stand behind them. I mean, and, and part of this issue with with this article uh, revolves around companies who say one thing and do something else, right? I mean, the proof is not in what you say; the proof is in what you do. And and if your people, if you're not going to stand behind the message, you're not going to stand behind the people. Then why are you even putting it out there? One thing from the PR aspect that I'd like to run by you, Mike, and I say this to clients often, is ask yourself, do you actually have to weigh in on this? There's a lot of political stuff in the news, uh, global conflicts. Do you really need to take a position? And would it benefit your workforce if you did? 
Most definitely. I mean, certainly through uh, COVID, when everything was glaring and and people were looking for some leadership, you know, people felt it was a necessity to to chime in on something. Uh, I think it's uh, equally difficult to not say something in a situation, and I think you have to be careful. And certainly, as a leader of an organization, and you know, I hate to say this, but we've seen this with people like Elon Musk and a few others. You know what? Keep your personal opinions to yourself. Uh, there's a there's an avenue for that. There's a way to deal with that. But it's certainly not tying it into your organization and having an effect on on your workforce. I mean, you you got to walk the walk and talk the talk. And and this is not a personal whim of uh, you know I've had a the the old fear of being on it on on Twitter or uh, or on uh, you know Instagram was I had a couple of drinks and said something I shouldn't. Well, you know what? People people in today's world are doing that without the drinks. <laughs> Indeed. Um, you can just not post, right? That's an option that everyone has. You can not post that thing. But if you if you are forced to, if it's something going on tied directly to your operations and you have to make a statement, um, I would say talking to your executive and having rules about what kind of language is acceptable and what's not. And it, it'll vary for every organization, but just having something to go to, a document, a set of guidelines, um, basic broadcasting rules for social media, all that I think would, would will make the crisis procedure a lot easier down the road. Yeah, and, and I, I kind of have the rule of, you know, I want to sleep on it. If it's something that's controversial and it hits me at a point in time at a four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, I, if it's if, it, if I think that this may be an issue, then I need to sit on it a little bit uh, to make sure that it does get the right message out. And it's not purely coming out as Mike being emotional, but rather as a, as a direction or a leadership coming from somebody that has an influence and, and people have to recognize in positions of leadership, you do have influence. Lastly, in the current events file, I want to talk about a bankruptcy, but I want you, Mike, to to bring us out of the bad news here, because if you do, if you are faced with bankruptcy, there is a way out, right? And so one gigantic company in Quebec uh, is in trouble right now, Energy Cardio, the, uh, the, the chain of gyms, and a lot of assets there. I'm curious about your perspective on that, but also about your perspective about those who can rebound after bankruptcy. Um, our, our recent guest, uh, Juliette Chocolat was in bankruptcy, bankruptcy protection and found their way out of it. Um, what do you have to do, especially if you have a lot of hard assets to to find a, a way out of that situation? Well, I think there's two things. And if you take most entrepreneurs and if you take most people that have either invented something and whether that's a concept, a process, a product, uh, you are likely going to fail at some point. And whether that ends up in bankruptcy or it doesn't end up in bankruptcy, the reality of accepting the fact that you are going to fail has to be part of uh, of your DNA. In order to, and I think if you come at it with that type of mentality to begin with, uh, there's always, there, look, there is always a way. There's bankruptcy protection. There is the sale of assets. There is partnership. I mean, there are, there are a number of ways that, that you can address this. It's reorganization. Uh, you know, I, and, and I think we're going to be seeing probably a lot more of these in the coming year uh, from a bankruptcy perspective, and whether that's corporate or whether it's personal. Um, there is life the day after, um, but I think it's about surrounding yourself with the right people and the right advice. Uh, and uh, we'll see from there if, uh, you know, you can continue to move forward. But 
you can't it's very hard to to turn around and say you know what i just failed i got to get back on my feet and and i think for you know some people i hate to say this have made careers about going bankrupt and reemerging somewhere else and that's not necessarily <laughs> what i'm talking about here i'm talking about you know that that honest entrepreneur who just did something wrong learn from your mistakes find that out and and yeah there there is life tomorrow and i got to tell you I have a number of clients who have been through that route before and have reemerged stronger. So there is hope out there. There is that one prominent example you're making reference to, but we won't go there. Uh, there's a few of them. And let's get right to our entrepreneur. Interesting concept, a first in Canada. Uh, Stephen Kuykeman Fontaine is the co-founder of Bokia, and uh, they're all about aftermarket IKEA products. Stephen, welcome to CJAD. Thank you for having me. So please explain a little further, what is Bokia? Yeah, so Bokia, we uh, create and manufacture high-end fronts for IKEA cabinets. So basically, you you start with IKEA, you buy the, the, the cabinets and the hardware from IKEA, and then afterwards, you buy the doors, the doors, the panels, the kick plates, everything from us after. So it's the perfect, perfect price quality ratio that tend to lower the cost by 30 to 50% compared to any other cabinet maker. So you're still using the bones then from the IKEA uh, furniture, correct? Exactly, all the structures. So the cabinet, like the white box, this is the cabinet, and then afterwards you buy the the the, the all the hardware because all the hardware from uh, from IKEA is made with a company called Blum from uh, Austria. So it, they make they only make high end uh, hardware. So yeah, what brought this on? I mean, I, I well, many of us have spent more than our share of time in IKEA as well as uh, definitely more than our share of time assembling uh, IKEA yeah. furniture once we brought it home. And needless to say, there's always parts left over. Um, but, you know, what what prompted this and 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 how do you see the value? I mean, you, you mentioned the price it dropped. So you're taking what has traditionally been a relatively lower end price point and now moving up the quality. Yeah, exactly. Or you, we tend to do, go down the other side. So all maybe seventy percent of our client go to a cabinet maker like a kitchen manufacturer, and then afterwards uh, comes to us because they get a quote from them like it's in the many, uh, let's say fifty thousand dollars. So they come to us afterwards and they have the same quality. So let's say it's a it's a walnut kitchen that the client is uh, th that the client wants then comes to us, uh, gets the same same or better quality kitchen for twenty five or thirty thousand dollars. So there's a, a big uh, a big gap between the, between the two. So this isn't geared at my you know uh, one twenty nine bookshelf. This is geared at some of the higher end IKEA uh, installations, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where did it start? Where, how how did you come up with that thought process? What you know? Yeah, what, 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 what prompted you to play in this space? It started. Uh, I did a lot of construction in the in my younger years, I would say, and um, and uh, maybe uh, I, I did a lot of real estate also. So I always thought I always pick IKEA for all the kitchen and the cabinet making in the in the in the apartments or in the house, and um, because I I knew it was the best price quality ratio you could have. But when I have I have like a architecture or a designer eye, I would say. So always when I when I was going for the designs or the, the the quality of the materials, I always wanted something a little bit more, right? So I tend to see all the companies that did this in Europe, and there are some maybe in the there are some in the U.S. also, but not many. And I was like, uh, this is a good idea. So started the idea about two years ago, 
and uh, we started our operation about a year ago. We just, we actually, we just uh, had our first annual anniversary about 15 days ago. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's it. That's where the, the idea came from. So is, is this something, I mean, if I'm going to remodel my kitchen, this is obviously an option that, that, that exists. Is this also yeah. for the initial installation as well? Yeah. So uh, it depends. It depends what kind of client, because we have many, many sort of client, right? We have the client that is uh, 100% DIYer, I would say. So do it yourself that buys the cabinets and then go on our website because it's an e-commerce and buy the, the materials that they want. Or we have on the other way, I would say, is uh, the client that's want, that wants like a 100% clé en main, I would say. So we can take the, this client that wants a uh, clé en main and yeah, so there's many, uh, many ways to, uh, to go, uh, go with us. Talk to me a little bit about communications and sort of the subculture that you're drawing on from the, the hacking or the, the do-it-yourself hack subculture that's popular on, on TikTok. Yeah, it's a, it's a big uh, population. There's a lot of people that they want to do their whole kitchen because they want to save money, but they, wanna, they also want to do the, the process, right? They, they t- it's ten- it tends to be like something that is uh, satisfying. So uh, the com- communication uh, for them is pretty easy because uh, the, the people know what they want. So we have a lot of clients that comes to us and say, like, I want this uh, Scandinavian type of kitchen. So we tend to go like, hey, this is a white oak kitchen. You can buy this, 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 this to make this design. And it's pretty easy. Yeah. So what I mean, Ikea usually sells these with a, with a, a certain warranty associated to it. How does that affect the warranty? That's uh, how do you guys you know collaborate on that? Yeah, the warranty is still the same. Uh, they we, you you cannot modify the the warranty uh, goes out when you modify a specific like um, uh, item, right? So if you cut down like a I would a cabinet or you cut you you modify the hardware from Ikea, then the guarantee is uh, is not good anymore. Yeah. For our products, we have a two-year warranty on our doors for the lacquer collection and the poly- the, the wood collection. And for our polymer collection, uh, it's 10 years. So let's talk a little about the product itself, uh, manufacturing yeah. process, uh, where are you sourcing from, that type of thing. Yeah, all the, um, we have, uh, it depends on the design, but we have design that, uh, some design that we do in-house and some other design that we have manufacturers uh, from, from Quebec that does it. But all, all our products are from here. They're, they're, they're from Quebec. And all the wood is sourced from Canada also. Um, so it's uh, 100% uh, from here. So, I mean, obviously, from, a, from an ecological standpoint, from an economical standpoint, uh, everything is, is based out of Quebec, or sorry, in Canada. Um, and, I mean, is it, was this a choice that you had made? Is this the history that you had in the, in the industry? Yeah, uh, it was a choice. Uh, there's a big reason for that. And the one that, uh, that pops up is because we have the knowledge here. We have all the, all the, the expertise and all the machinery from the manufacturers here in Montreal and in Quebec for the door making is pretty outstanding and is very well known in the industry. Um, so yeah, when you go like in the U S and every, uh, we have some clients in the U S right now that, that wants to know where we do our doors and I'll, it's it's a it's a proud moment to say it's all made in in Quebec. 
but we'll save the U.S. Uh, foray for the, yeah. for the after the break. But I guess the last question I have in in, in terms of the design, and, and I mean, I guess there's a limited number of opportunities. This is not necessarily custom made doors, correct? This is you have a catalog of doors and people choose from, or do they have the opportunity to custom make them? When you say custom make them, you you say about the the, the format or the, the 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 design? The design. The design, yeah, we have a catalog. We have twelve designs. Uh, there's uh, there's they're all uh, specific um, measurements for IKEA, but we can do custom uh, measurements also. So yeah, are you doing installation as well? Uh, we don't do installation. We do uh, the installation uh, process. We have uh, some installers that we just refer because they're good installers. So if, like I said, if you want a solution that's a hundred percent turnkey, well, you can have uh, one of our installers that we we refer. Is the installation easier or more difficult than original IKEA parts? It's it's the same. It's really the same. The holes are the same. The the, the formats are the same. So you can you can take the installation like a manual from IKEA, and it's the same than uh, than IKEA. Yeah. And Mike, this is a new concept to Canada, which is really interesting. So what they do at Bokia is uh, based on IKEA products. They you know go out, you buy your IKEA, and then you buy the Bokia finishings, and you take your IKEA furniture to the next level. So my, my question, Stephen, from a business case, from a communications case, uh, or even from a rights case, what does IKEA think about all of this? Um, well, it's a, it's a good question. And it's a pretty, it, it, it's a new concept here, right? In Montreal and in Quebec, but it's not a new concept in the world. There's about uh, 20 or 30 companies from Europe doing the same thing. It's a, it's a concept that is known, like it, it's called IKEA hacking. So basically you start from the Ikea base, like the cabinets and the hardware, and then you just put the, the, the finishing part afterwards. So I always say to, to friends that are entrepreneur or uh, that have companies, what would you say if I bring clients from a market that you didn't work for, right? So basically our clients wouldn't go at Ikea if we didn't exist. So I think it's a big uh, advantage for them. Yeah. And Ikeo, they 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 want they want the walk in uh, they have a walk walk in concept, right? I don't know if you you I well you you've been to an Ikea. It's a it's a freaking maze going there. So they want they want uh, clients going there uh, and and go in the maze. Yeah, I always have a hard time having to follow the arrow and being told which yeah. way to walk, but that's a whole different therapy session. Um, if if we look at this and and you know, obviously this is a move to you into you talked a little bit before about going into the US, you talk about that market. Is this does this concept exist and you are now going in to compete in the US with the IKEA or is this brand new into the US market? No, it exists. Uh, it it it's more on the on the West Coast. So there's a there's a big uh, market uh, for us to uh to answer in like the, we call it the bow wash area. So from Boston to Washington, there's a lot of people there. It's about 54, 54 million, I think. So uh, yeah, so it's it's not a new concept there, but uh, we we have a, uh, a nice offer for this market, right? We tend to go more on the, on the high-end side uh, for, the, for the finishing process and all the materials. And there's a big, big, big advantage. I don't know if you saw the currency exchange right now for the U.S. CAD dollar, uh, but there's a big, big, big uh, advantage for them to buy from us. Yeah. So breaking into the market in the U.S. is never an easy, ex- you know, uh, exercise. What does you know? What what were some of the obstacles that you faced, and and how did you get around them? 
I would say the shipping part, because uh, since we ship everything on like uh, pallets, uh, the shipping part is a, it's a big hassle uh, because you can, there's a, you have to protect everything. Uh, there's a border um, fee that, yeah, the border fee that we have to, uh, to pay. And uh, yeah, so that's the the big uh, obstacle. Yeah, you know, obviously you can you're continuing to manufacture the product here in in Quebec and in Canada, selling into the U.S. Uh, yeah. Is that is this a reputation that uh, that is held uh, in Canada based on Quebec manufacturing the same when you go into the U.S. or have you have you felt this by U.S. model uh, being a little more uh, challenging? No, the U.S. model they, they like they like our products, especially when they think about Canada. They think about wood and forest and everything, so they they tend to go like uh, this is good products. And uh, we just to, to let you know about we have a lot of manufacturers of doors and whole kitchen here in in Montreal and in Quebec, and seventy percent of everything is exported to the U.S. So uh, they tend to know uh, we have a, a good quality of products. When you, when you crossed into the U.S., was this in conjunction with IKEA or was this a separate foray? It's a separate, separate, yeah. Okay, and you're getting the same yeah. support and the same guarantees and the same yeah, yeah, it's the same with them in the U.S. Okay. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Give us a little bit of history of yourself. I mean, you said you worked in the construction industry for a while. What you know, what what drove you to to be in this space? What kind of you know education has brought you to uh, working so closely with IKEA? Uh, well, I think. I think the best way to to explain it is I was a I was a good client. Uh, I was looking in the market and there was no uh, answer for for the needs that I had for 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 the the kitchen and everything I was doing in the construction. And uh, if if you're a client, there must be other other people that wants that kind of product, right? So that's why we we created Bokia. Taking a look at the website now, and we're talking about e-commerce uh, in a few minutes on the show. Um, love the website. The content is really nicely uh, explained. Thank the three you. steps, how it works, buy the IKEA, add, add the Bokia. Um, really beautiful and simple. What's your strategy for e-commerce? And uh, what are you working on in terms of R&D there? There's all kinds of ways you can play around, I think, with uh, with design, with a product like yours. Yeah, for strategy, uh, since I, I, I think you know, like, when you're a new website, there's like three things that you can do to bring your website on the next level. Uh, we tend to do a lot of uh, collaboration with influencers and uh, designers to like showcase our website. Um, we the 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 website all our offering on the website uh, we have about two hundred I think two hundred thousand products. So it's a big uh, it's a big uh, machine that we have to put to to date. And yeah, so we it's a it's a it's a pretty new concept also to buy your kitchen online. So we we have to to take the clients and very and take them by the hand to show the step by step process uh, for for buying their whole kitchen. But everyone there's a lot of people buying stuff from the internet, so there's a there's a big uh, big market there, and people are are getting used to it. Yeah. Are you doing other marketing other than online via e-commerce? Is there no? Anything it's, pretty much just online yeah okay and it's uh i mean you if you go through the website like dan says it's 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 significantly more user-friendly than some of my instructions for my yeah. have been over the years <laughs> um you know I, I i look at this and you know you say how much of uh, how, how how much influence does ikea have in the design side of this 
Like, I mean, are you using IKEA designs? Are you... No, no, we don't. It's all it's all separate. Uh, the only thing that we're based uh, where, well, we we have to be based on this is their IKEA kitchen planner. So it's a planning like software that they have that when you put a cabinet, uh, the, all the hardware, you're going to have like a list ready to order afterwards. That's the only thing that we're working with IKEA. Uh, but uh, yeah, everything uh, everything else is separate. Are you selling to anybody other than Ikea? Well, we're not selling to Ikea. We're selling directly right to, the to, customer, the, to the customer. But no, that's the uh, that's the uh, the main process and the main market. Yeah. And it's a big market. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So what's your next step? I mean, obviously, tackling uh, tackling the U.S. Uh, how long have you been in the U.S.? And, and, and you know, how long do you think you're going to be pushing yeah, the, here? And, and then where do you go from there? The next step? Uh, well, we just started in September to sell in the U.S., so it's it's still our our biggest uh, our biggest step uh, and our biggest uh, challenge in the next uh, in the next months, but yeah it's uh, it's getting the getting the brand known getting the the um, and it's weird because when when I started the company in here in Montreal uh, with Alex it was uh, the, Alex my partner the main like uh, challenge was telling people that you could do this right it was teaching people about the concept. When I go to the U.S. or when I talk to designers or end users in the U.S., they already know the concept. So it's pretty, uh, it's it's a lot easier to sell a kitchen there than here. But uh, yeah, so it's for the challenge for the next years and the next months, it's uh, getting the, the company bigger and uh, getting our team bigger also. Yeah. You look at keeping everything in Quebec from mind and management at this point? Yeah, for now, yeah. For the next uh, three, uh, three or five years, it's going to stay here. Uh, for the reason that we just uh, talked about uh, all the manufacturing and all the knowledge here that we have. And yeah. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for stopping by. Uh, you're going to hang around. We have you one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs in just a few minutes. But first, let's check in with our BDO specialist. Anne-Marie Henson is the Eastern Canada leader at BDO Canada here to talk about digital transformation. Anne-Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be back. And I figured uh, since you're talking today to a company that supplies cabinet fronts, it'd be a great time to talk about the importance of digital transformation for manufacturing companies. So the whole manufacturing environment, uh, you know, we, we've seen shifts in, out, around uh, as we try to bring back more manufacturing to North America. Um, and obviously, in order to do that, there's a whole exercise in in uh, efficiency. Uh, what are some of the pain points manufacturing companies are experiencing today uh, that may lead them to to move towards a, a digital transformation strategy? And maybe just preface that a little bit with what is a digital transformation strategy? Ah, great question. So uh, it's um, a digital transformation strategy is uh, it, it's. It, you know, could encompass multiple different things, but essentially what it means is really taking a look, a company to take a look at all of their systems, their processes, the way they operate, the way they buy, they buy the way they sell, um, how they manage their payroll, uh, and taking a close look at how all of those things are interlinked, what systems they use, uh, and really devising a strategy that helps them be more efficient uh, to improve their margins uh, and really make their operations run a lot more smoothly. So uh, at a high, high level, that's uh, that's what it means. So it seems like, an I mean, for manufacturers, this 
it seems like a good time for them to be doing this. But, you know, you look at this for a lot of manufacturers, and I would say maybe a lot that are a little bit older, this is this could be a relatively significant change for the way they've been doing business. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think there's so many things that have happened over the past like 10, 15 years that it's hard to keep up with the pace of change and, and why it's so important to do this today. Uh, it's important for all companies, I just think in general for manufacturers, distributors, any company that really operates with um, the, the sale of, of goods and products, it's all that much more important just because of the number of processes involved in in what they do. Uh, you know, for starters, uh, you know, we could go back to the movement um, many years ago now towards offshoring. Uh, it's great to hear, uh, you know, a newer company like Bokea uh, take a, a a very uh, conscious decision to to produce in Canada. Uh, and and that's very different from the attitudes say 20 years ago, where to get the best margins and be the most competitive, you actually almost had to offshore the production of your goods and uh, the import of your materials. But when the pandemic hit a few years ago, as we saw uh, very closely, a lot of these companies were faced with a lot of supply chain disruptions. Uh, really long delays, so they weren't able to deliver to their customers uh, in the time frame that they were hoping. Uh, and a lot of companies at that time tried to sort of overcompensate by stocking inventory. When you look at the landscape today with high interest rates, uh, stocking inventory comes at a cost. So I think when you look at many companies' sort of digital transformation journey to date, uh, there's a lot of mid-sized companies in Canada that they've already recognized that this is important for them and they started that journey to convert their systems gradually over time. But I think what you're left with is some companies are faced with a bunch of different systems and applications within their organization that they don't talk to each other. So they don't interlink and you're having to have this manual process and reconciliations between them. So you're operating at a sort of a lower capacity or potential, and you're probably paying a lot more than you should for all of these systems. And I don't think that applies just to the manufacturing sector, but I think the manufacturing sector probably can pick up some of the biggest efficiencies on some of this. So, you know, if you're if you're a, a manufacturing business, and I know you've got a lot of experience in the manufacturing sector, if you're a manufacturing business, eh, where do you start? Like, what what's the what's the first? Other than the fact that you got to recognize that you got to be more efficient, where do you start? So, I think. Everything starts with a plan, right? Uh, a lot of uh, these sort of discussions can seem very overwhelming when uh, you you really just don't know where to begin. And there's really no benefit in jumping in right away and saying, oh, I need to upgrade this system or I need to, I need to change this application uh, before taking the time first to understand where are you today? And even more importantly, where do you want to be in the future? Where do you want to take your business so that you're making changes that are going to be useful for, for where you want to grow or what you want to become? So I think my first piece of advice would be to, to build a, a strategy or a digital roadmap. And, and that way you have a really much better idea of where you want to go. But also it's going to help you prioritize and make decisions on what to start with. So, you know, for example, if you're still using a spreadsheet to manage your inventory, maybe that's a really 
a good place to start and decide I'm going to invest in a proper inventory management system. So that digital roadmap really just helps you identify the gaps and the opportunities within your business uh, as it relates to sort of your systems. And it's a great foundational tool to have as your starting point that you can build on, right? It can, it can be flexible and change with you uh, as you move forward and grow. So the entrepreneur slash finance guy in me has the one simple question for you. Talk to me about ROI, your turn on investment. I mean, this is this can be a costly process. Uh, how do we how do we deal with this? What does this of look course. like? Of course, yeah, for sure, it's a really good question, and it's true. Uh, we can't shy away from the fact that uh, digital transformation strategies uh, is it's a costly investment. So you're you're essentially you could be overhauling your entire business and how it operates. And uh, there are actually studies that show that concerns over cost is actually the number one reason that Canadian manufacturers today have delayed their adoption of new technologies. So this is a real concern for entrepreneurs. Uh, it's important, obviously, to evaluate the cost benefit of what you want to undertake. And uh, I think the best bet is to work with an advisor who can help you assess what is that potential ROI? So what are you going to get in the future? What are you going to save? What's your future capacity potential to grow revenue versus the initial cost so that you can get a better idea of whether it's worth it or not and when you should spend that money? Um, and it's important, I think, to work with an advisor or consultant who has a solution that's scalable. Uh, what works for one company uh, or what one company is willing to pay at that time is not necessarily what you are willing to pay or invest uh, or what you need today. So you, you really need to find someone who's going to find you a solution that's tailored to your needs and uh, help you make decisions on what you want to do today. Um, so, you know, there are some times where you realize that uh, there are certain strategies or certain systems that you almost must upgrade because they're outdated or they're not even supported anymore. And other uh, perhaps investments are more of a nice to have and those maybe you could take care of tomorrow. So I think one thing all Canadian manufacturers need to be aware of is that um, there are also incentives that are available in the form of uh, tax credits, grants, there's even zero interest loans that are available depending on what you undertake. So it could seem like a daunting task to, to overhaul and, and really move towards your digital transformation journey. Um, but I, I think that there are things, there are tools and incentives available to help manufacturers. So uh, one thing's for sure is um, We've seen a lot of manufacturing companies adopt new technologies recently. So at a minimum, just start informing yourself, like start having those discussions because the last thing you want is to be left behind by your competitors. Thanks very much. Anne-Marie Henson, Eastern Canada leader at BDO Canada. And don't forget, there's lots of advice and thought leadership from the BDO team at BDO.ca. And as we come to the end of our show, let's ask our entrepreneur, Steve Kikaman Fontaine from Bokia for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. Stephen, what do you think? Yeah, it's going to sound cheesy. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, well, the, the one piece of advice I would say is uh, keeping, keeping your, your mind on your, on your, your mindset on your goal, right? Enjoying the process, that's a big, 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 because the process uh, of uh, entrepreneurship is pretty difficult. 
so that's the one thing. But the main, main thing I would say is choosing your company, uh, choosing the, com- the, the people that you work with, uh, choosing the right people to work with, choosing people that, that um, doesn't have the same qualities and uh, the same qualities than you and uh, to build a great team because you cannot do this uh, alone. Excellent. Um, Mike, uh, some entrepreneurs, they, they, they take a thing or they try to invent a thing and others perfect a thing or take a thing to the next level. Definitely. We're seeing a good example here. And it's interesting, the the point that Stephen brought up before about how, you know, selling into Canada was a little more complex on this concept, whereas in the U.S. it's already there. I guess I fall into the true Canadian side on this one because before doing a little bit of research, I wasn't overly familiar with this. But I think the concept here is a great one. And uh, really wish in my previous home when we redid the kitchen, I would have known about this at the time because, uh, yeah, anyway, so I would have, would have saved a few dollars along the way and probably given uh, given the great quality that seems to be there. So, Stephen, uh, you know, I think this is this is a great piece of, uh, you know, that you're contributing to the market and, and power to you. And hopefully that this foray into the U.S. Uh, is uh, is more than just that, that this is a full, full blown environment. Thank you. Thanks so much, Stephen. Next week on Inspiring Entrepreneurs by BDO Canada, we'll chat with Camille Delaurier from PickPack, a recyclable envelope company. A reminder, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite platform for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. Thanks, Mike. See you next week. Thanks, Dan. Talk.